This episode is brought to you by NCMM, the National Coalition of Ministries to Men. Starving as an artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. Best-selling author, speaker, entrepreneur Jeff Goins joins us on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Bold Idea Podcast. I'm Larry Gates. And I'm Armin Asadi. And we are here to help you put your faith to work because we believe there's so much more inside of you that's just dying to come out. Just dying to come out. I think I said that last time. (laughs) Well, we want to welcome you to this episode. We think you're going to be really thrilled. It's a longer episode today, but uh, you are going to love what you hear. We have Jeff Goines, a writer, speaker, author of five books, including the best-selling book, Art of Work, and his latest release, Real Artists Don't Starve. Now, Jeff has written for hundreds of magazines, publications, and blog, and his own blog has been voted one of the top 10 blogs on writing. He also is a fellow podcaster hosting his own podcast called The Portfolio Life. And without further ado, we want to welcome Jeff Goins. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Larry. Yeah, you bet. And, you know, I've been following you for some time, and I want to talk about your new book that's coming out, Real Artists Don't Starve. And I just love that title because it's so provocative and hits home for many people. But before we do, I think you have an interesting story about how you got started out as a writer. And you moved from being a marketing communications director for a nonprofit into becoming a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and writing entrepreneur. How did that happen? Well, uh, you know, it happened the way anything happens, which is slowly, <laughs> much more, much more slowly than you want it to. Um, and uh, you know, on the outside looking in, things look one way; on the inside looking out, they look very different. So for me, this was an eight-year journey. I um, always was, you know, I always liked writing. I never really took it seriously. Never thought of myself as a writer, which I think is a common thing amongst creatives. You paint, but you don't think of yourself as an artist. You play guitar, but you don't think of yourself as a musician. You write, but you don't think of yourself as a writer because we have in our minds this idea that what professional do, professionals do is not what we do. And, and that was sort of my mindset. And so I was, I've was. i always done creative things. As a kid, I used to draw cartoons. As a teenager, I learned guitar and played in all these bands. Uh, in college, I got into public speaking, acting, directing, you know, public performance, and continued to do the music thing. And I graduated college and ended up touring the country with uh, a band for years in a Christian music ministry. And um, you know, throughout the years, I, I would you, you do something creative, you 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 know, your, your band produces a CD and you start selling it, and and do all these things, and people come along, you know, usually well-meaning adults, and say, hey that's great that you're doing this while you're young because when you get older, you're going to have to go get a real job. <laughs> All right. You can't make any money off of music, off of writing, off of art, et cetera. And, and I heard this and, and like it, nobody was like trying to be mean. You know, when I was touring with the band, I made $8,000 that year. And, um, uh, you know, one of the ways that we kept expenses low and we made that an actual livable income is we would stay in people's homes. And so every, 
few nights staying with somebody else, they'd say, it's great that you're doing this while you're young because when you get older, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and I believed them. Mm-hmm. And so after that year, I quit the band. I moved to Nashville, which is not the order that those things are supposed to happen in. <laughs> and as you mentioned, Larry, I started working for a nonprofit initially as a copywriter, then a marketing manager. And eventually I started the first marketing department there and then worked in like an innovation department and then started a communications department there over the course of about six and a half years. Five years into this, I'm in my late 20s and I feel an itch that I don't know how to scratch. There's this sense of discontent. And here I am doing ministry um, and, and, and kind of feeling guilty for wanting something more, something Mm -hmm. that feels more meaningful, more personally gratifying. But this itch was there and I tried to scratch it. And so I'd read books and go to conferences. And I love what Parker Palmer says about this. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. So I started listening to my life. And one of the things that emerged from that, you know, is a six month period of just kind of trying to find the thing that I was looking for. I I don't think I understood it yet as a calling or purpose, but looking back on it, that's exactly what I was doing. And a number of things happened in a short amount of time. Um, I went to, you know, one conference and they said, who here doesn't know what their dream is? And I raised my hand and the speaker said, I think you're lying. I think you do know what your dream is. You're just afraid to admit it. Mm. And I wrote in my notebook, writer, and I brought it home to my wife. I said, look, I was probably 27 at this time. Uh, Look at this. This says I'm supposed to be a writer. And uh, my wife said, are you kidding me? I've been telling you that for five years. You have to go to a conference and pay $200 to find this out. You could have taken me to dinner for that, right? (laughs) Right. And and I joined a coaching group around this time that my boss ended up paying for, uh, you know, this, this sort of like continued professional development. And this was a yearly coaching program the second month, we were all gathered together. There's about 11 of us and one of the other participants in the program, not the coach, just another, you know, a peer of mine said, hey, what's your dream? I had just been at a conference where I realized my dream was to be a writer. And I said, I don't know. Uh-huh. And he said, really? Because yeah, I would have thought your, your dream was to be a writer. Uh-huh. And I was just really afraid to admit it because when you admit something like that, there's a certain amount of responsibility that you have you know, after you've admitted, this is my dream, this is my thing, I have to go do it. And, and I was afraid of that. I was afraid of the cost and I just wasn't sure. And, you know, I didn't want to go all in on something. But here's a person who's known me for two months who can already see it on me because he knows I have a blog. And, you know, sometimes it takes someone else to tell us the most obvious fact about ourselves that we're just oblivious to. And so I said, yeah, you know, I guess I'd like to be a writer. And he says, Jeff, well, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment that activity follows identity. That Before you can go do something, you have to become someone. That goes back to that Parker Palmer thing. Before I can tell my life, here's what I want to do with you. I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. It became very clear over, you know, throughout that season that my life was telling me, and I believe God was telling me through circumstances in my life, that this was my next step. This is the thing that I needed to be doing. And so the next morning, I got up at 5 a.m. and I started writing every single day. And I did that for an entire year. I grew my blog, goingswriter.com, which was my ninth blog. I had these eight other failed projects. But this one, I decided I would not quit because something was um, 
pulling me, not just driving me, pulling me uh, along in a way that felt more purposeful and significant than those previous projects. And so a year into it, I had tens of thousands of readers. And two years into it, I had made more than enough money to for my wife to quit her job and for me to quit my job. And the final conversation for me that kind of completed this two and a half, three year journey was a conversation with a mentor where I was really debating whether or not I, I should leave my ministry job to become a full-time professional writer. And he said, Jeff, what's happened to you is rare. Uh, I know you and I didn't see it coming. I don't think anybody saw it coming. Mm. You need to consider the possibility that this is your calling and that not doing this could be an act of disobedience to God. Mm. And next day I you know, made plans to, uh, to put my notice in and, 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 you know, the journey began. I think uh, that's, a, that's a remarkable story because I think it, so many people can identify with that. They feel like uh, this discontent that they may have is an attitude that they need to correct about their present situation rather than maybe something about their life and maybe God speaking into it and saying, you know, I'm giving you a discontent to move you along and make you think about something more bold and confront your fears and trust me for it. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I do think we are always challenged to find contentment in whatever season we're in. Uh, but at the same time, there's a difference between being content and settling. And I just knew intuitively that if I stayed in that job another 10 years, I was good at it. I kept getting raises. I kept getting promoted, getting more responsibility. Like it was a good job. And my boss was a good man. I just knew that 10 years from now, I'd be heading towards a midlife crisis because I knew that there was something more and it would, it was, it was easier for me to just stay where I was. And so I think, you know, you'll, you often hear these stories of, I, I was in a cubicle and I hated my job and so I quit it and I leapt and the net appeared. And I think if you hate your job, if you have a really horrible job, that's good news. Because your next decision should be pretty easy. <laughs> right on. You can't stay there. Like I'm not trying to diminish how hard having a bad job is yeah. or a bad boss or whatever. Yeah. But um, that's an easy decision to make. Yeah. I think the more dangerous place to be is when you like your job but you don't love it. When you're in a comfortable situation where nothing is going to force you to make a change. Like that's a really dangerous place to be because you can coast through life for the next 5, 10, 15 years without worried, worrying about getting fired or, you know, something, you know, forcing the change. And that's, I think the most dangerous place to be is in the place of comfort. When you run across people like that, Jeff, that are in that place of comfort, I know you probably talk to hundreds, if not thousands of people that have that situation. What advice do you give them? I'm pretty practical about this, Leary. I don't think you should just quit your job, especially if you have a family and responsibilities and other people relying on you. But even if you don't, this is not the best recipe for success. So in the book, I, I talk about kind of a counterintuitive way to do this. And this is something I've been talking about for years because in my space, the advice giving space where, you know, we're encouraging people to chase their dreams there is kind of this cliche, you know, take a leap of faith. And I'm a man of faith. I believe in faith. I am pro-faith. And yet I don't think this is the way to be faithful with a calling is to just rashly 
burn a bridge, quit something, and 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 start a passion. And now you've got to get good at it. You've got to make money off of it so you, you can support yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you've got to get people to know about it. And you've got to do all these things all at once, right? While burning through your savings, if you have any. And so I tell people, don't take a leap of faith. Instead, build a bridge. Mm-hmm. Do something slow and steady over time that creates momentum. This is what I did. This is what uh, a lot of successful people do. When you cut through all of the cliches and you know the myths behind their successes, you find out they've been practicing this for years. And the moment at which they got their big break, they had been honing their craft. They had been practicing in the margins often for years. And I cannot find a success story uh, of a writer, of an artist, of, of an entrepreneur who built their thing and it's had sustainable success where they didn't spend at least two years building it on the side. There's a story of, of John Grisham in the book where he was a lawyer, a uh, fairly new lawyer, brand new dad, uh, in other words, very busy guy, and just got this idea in his mind that he'd like to maybe write a book, right? Like as, as we all do, as you know, Studies show that 80% of the population wants to write a book someday, and he was one of those people. He didn't know that he could do it. He didn't quit his job. He didn't say, uh, like, I'm going to go be a writer now. He just was curious. Can I do this? And so he got up a little bit early every day and wrote one page of a novel that he was working on just to see if he could pull it off, right? And he did this for a year. He got half the novel done. Okay, that's fun. I'm going to keep going. Does it another year. Takes him two years to finish his first novel. He sells it to a tiny publisher. It doesn't do well, but that was fun. He decides to do it again. He starts working on book two. Same deal. Gets up, kisses his kids, uh, says goodbye to his wife, goes to work and starts writing. Does it for, you know, the first 30 to 60 minutes of the day. Writes one page, just one page, a few hundred words, and does it again and again and again. Every single day. This book is called The Firm. He ends up selling this book to a larger publisher. While he's working on this book, he buys a thousand copies of his first book and starts selling them and marketing them because he realizes the publisher isn't really going to do anything. The Firm becomes a mega bestseller and sells millions of copies. And he's now a an overnight success four years in the making. It is at this point that he decides, oh, I guess I'm a writer. I think I'm going to quit my job and go all in on this. I find that the the rule is building a bridge, not taking a leap. But we hear people, you know, and I, I love the um, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the the word picture of this story where um, you know, we hear people say, "Oh, just take a leap, go big, take a big risk." And, and the truth is, the statistics disagree with this. This is not the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you hear some guy saying, yes, you can jump out an airplane and build your parachute on the way down, I did it. You can do it too. Well, that's great. Like you're talking to the one guy that survived, not the 99 <laughs> dead guys, right? And that's kind of what's going on here. There was a study um, conducted by the University of Wisconsin where they followed um, – 5,000, over 5,000 American entrepreneurs for 15 years. And and they had two test groups. One were uh, entrepreneurs who quit their jobs to start a business. The others were those who started a business while keeping their job and eventually went full-time with the business, you know, over the course of years when it made sense. The, The businesses that were less risky, the ones that were built 
on the side were twice as likely to succeed. Twice of them, uh, uh, 100% more of them succeeded than the ones that um, where they went all in. So the failure rate was twice as likely with the people who took the big risks. They took a leap. And so my advice to people is if you want to do something, uh, don't quit your job. Don't go, quote, all in on it. Pick some daily habit that you can practice over and over and over again to, first of all, see if you like doing this because doing something that is a hobby every single day becomes work Mm -hmm. and you may not like it. You may just want to keep it as a hobby. That's what I learned about music is I love music. I played it professionally and it I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. And I, I could kind of take or leave. And I thought, this is probably not what I should be doing. With <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and so pick something that you could do every single day to see if you like it so that you can get good at it and so that you can create enough momentum. So, you know, the moment that happened with my, my friend who said, what's happened to you is rare. Uh, you need to consider that this is your calling. Mm-hmm. This is a less risky, more responsible uh, and just better way to find the work that brings the most meaning to your life that also is going to impact the most amount of people. Don't just chase a dream. Practice it day in and day out. And as you do that, your life will kind of give you signs that this is the right move or the wrong move and and you don't have to you know, mortgage your future for it. Yeah. That's- so what do you say to the other group, the bigger group of people who are typically more risk averse and uh, you know, we're, we're talking to the people who shouldn't take leaps of faith and the opposite side of it are the people who won't even take a singular step towards it because they don't want to mess with what they have going. What do you say to those people? That's a great question because I'm not saying avoid risk. Like there is inherent risk in starting a business, working on a blog, um, spending 30 to 60 minutes, you know, doing something on the side when you could be spending that time doing something else, spending time with your family, working, you know, working on getting that promotion or whatever. So there are risks to doing this. And the people who had their jobs, you know, these, the study of entrepreneurs who also, who had day jobs, but were also starting a business, there was a risk to that, of course. Um, It was just a calculated risk. And I find that the most successful people I know, they're not taking leaps, but they are taking steps. And so what I would say to the person who goes, well, I'm just going to stay where I am. I don't want to take any risk. I think they're they're being intellectually dishonest. And what I mean by that is you think by standing still, you're avoiding risk. And the truth is there is a very big risk, especially today, to standing still. Uh, in terms of the job market, um, Forbes released a study several years ago that predicted by the year 2020, half of the American workforce is going to be freelance. They're going to be 1099. They're not going to have a W-2 employed job. Half. By 2030, it's going to be well over half, you know, 60, 70%. Uh, We live in what is now called the gig economy. Large companies are downsizing. They're outsourcing. People want to work from home. They want flexibility. And so whether you accept it or not, the majority of us in the next decade uh, are going to have multiple gigs. We are going to be entrepreneurs in the sense that we're living what's called a portfolio life. Uh, we're, we're going to have to juggle multiple responsibilities, and we are going to be more in charge of our career than the companies that employ us because it will be multiple entities. And so I think you just need to understand that 
staying put is a risk too. And I would argue it's the greater risk. Mm -hmm. And so we live in this era of opportunity where you are more in control of the work that you do and the career path that you set before you. Uh, But you need to understand that if you've got a full-time job working for company X right now, the the idea that you're going to work 40 years there or even 10 years and um, that that's a secure job, that that is now the exception, not the rule. So um, stay, staying put is, in my opinion, the bigger risk because the world is moving on without you and that paradigm is dying. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your new book because it seems to me like the thesis, Real Artists Don't Starve, is – probably the antidote to some of the fear that might be keeping keeping people from uh, stepping out and, uh, and, and doing the practices that you're describing that might get them to build that bridge that you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. And it seems like it's that whole for, for, for love or money kind of argument that seems to be I, deeply yeah. embedded in our culture. And um, you describe that as uh, the starving artist as a myth. So talk about that. Yeah, so when I say artist, I mean any person who has a creative gift to share with the world. So if you're a baker, you know, and you love making cakes uh, or, you know, loaves of bread or whatever, um, you know, then you're an artist. If you're a carpenter and you look at your work as a craft, as something that you, uh, you take very seriously and this is your gift to the world, then you're an artist. And certainly if you write books or make music uh, or, you know, draw cartoons, uh, you're also an artist. And so in the book, uh, I tell stories from you know, contemporary stories of people that I interviewed who are thriving artists. They are creatives who are making a living off of their art. They're not like super famous people either. But then I also compare and contrast those stories with um, uh, you know historical examples of Picasso, Michelangelo, and so on. And yeah, the thesis is starving as an artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. And so whether or not you starve is really up to you. And it's just a question of, are you willing to do the work? And so in the book, I lay out these 12 rules. If you follow these rules, you're much more likely to succeed. And if you don't, you're really rolling the dice. You're you're jumping out of the plane, you know, trying to build a parachute on the way down. You might land, but the odds are against you. Yeah, share some of those rules with us. What are the, the most important ones that you have found? So, I mean, I think they're all important, um, but uh, I, you know, the, the one I start with is, uh, is is the idea of mindset, which is that you're not born an artist, you become one. It's a choice, and all the people I talked to didn't say, you know, I was born with a paintbrush in my hand, or this is, you know, some people said this is always something that I've done, but there was definitely this moment where they decided I'm going to take this seriously. I am going to, in the words of Stephen Pressfield, turn pro. And Pressfield says you have to do that in your head before you do that in public. And and so it really is a question of, am I going to take this seriously? And, and Larry, you mentioned the myth of the starving artist. A myth is a story that you tell yourself that helps you make sense of the world around you. So if you're one of those people who, you know, you think of yourself as an amateur, a faker, uh, somebody who's a wannabe well, guess what? Like you're going to produce amateurish work. And if you think you're going to starve as an artist, you probably will. And one of the themes, one of the threads throughout the book is the story of Michelangelo, who is obviously one of the world's most famous artists. He was also the wealthiest artist of his time. And in the Renaissance, in the early Renaissance, 
he was the wealthiest artist who had ever lived lived up to that point. And there are people obviously who came after him who were wealthier, but he set a precedent that many artists in the Renaissance followed, which is that it is possible to be wealthy and produce really great, compelling creative work. And lots of people followed in his footsteps. And he's kind of an archetype in the book where I want to argue that we're now living in a new Renaissance where we have lots of Michelangelo's who are making a living off of their art, producing good, honest uh, work with integrity that's interesting, uh, where they're not selling out, they're not just doing it for a buck, but at the same time, they're not starving. And, and I think he exemplifies this idea of mindset really, really well in that from day one, he decided that he was going to be a thriving artist. And the reason for this is because his parents told him a story while he was growing up. And the story was, you are descended from noble blood. They had a last name, Buonarotti. And if you had a surname during that time, like not everybody had a last name, you were noble, you were special. And so they basically said, you know, we have this um, lost connection to all these noble families. We need to regain our status um, you know, as a noble family. And so when Michelangelo decides to be uh, an artist, he's thinking like an aristocrat. He's not an aristocrat, but he's been told the story. You are special. You are noble. Therefore, when he becomes an artist, he goes and finds the best artist in Florence to uh, apprentice him. And not only does he do that, he talks uh, the artist into paying him instead of what was normal where the apprentice would pay the master. He, he talks – uh, this artist into actually paying him to be apprentice, which was crazy. And and then uh, that leads to a connection with Lorenzo de' Medici, who's the wealthiest patron in Florence. Uh, he gets connected with his family, which eventually become future popes and all this. And by the time he's a working artist, he's making 10 times what his peers are making, all because he was told a story growing up, you're a special, you're a noble. Now, here's the catch. Here's the interesting thing. This is why I think this is the most important you know, rule. It's, it's the first chapter in the book. He wasn't actually noble. Years later, uh, and this wasn't a lie necessarily. This is something that the family believed. But years later, historians kind of did the bloodline uh, traces you know, and kind of went back and realized, no, they actually weren't a noble family. Mm. Um, yes, they had a surname, but no, they were not. The, the story that they told themselves was not true. But because he believed it, it became true. And so I believe that whatever story we're telling ourselves has a way of coming true. And so there are good myths and bad myths. And as um, J.R.R. Tolkien once told his friend C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist at the time, and, and Lewis said, ah, oh, you know, talking about the Bible, those are all just myths. And Tolkien said to Lewis, some myths are true. And I, and I believe that. And I would also say some myths become true when you believe them deeply enough. Mm. And so being a starving artist is a choice. Michelangelo believed that he didn't have to starve at a time when artists were not wealthy. And because he believed this thing was true of himself, it became true. And so I don't think we fake it till we make it, but I do believe that we believe it till we become it. Jeff, didn't didn't he also um, kind of portray himself as not very wealthy, among, at least among his peers? Yeah, so I, I mean... Certainly, uh, he played up this myth of the starving artist. He mm-hmm. would write these letters to his fathers when he was working on um, the Sistine Chapel. You know, he would talk about himself being penniless. Mm-hmm. He was paid the equivalent of a million dollars to paint the Sistine Chapel. 
So yeah, he definitely played that up later in life. He wore nicer clothes and you know, kind of, and bought a bunch of properties and let his wealth show a little bit more. But people did not completely understand how wealthy he was until 2003, when this art historian, a guy named Rab Hatfield, uh, who, who I interview and talk about in the book, he discovered all these previously unknown financial holdings and bank accounts. And his peers understood that you know he was better off than than them, but. We didn't really understand how wealthy he was. And I don't know about you, but I never heard that Michelangelo was rich. No, neither did I. Yeah. And it turns out he had $50 million to his name. Not not only when he died, but throughout much of his life, he was uh, very well paid. And I argue it's, it wasn't luck. Uh, it wasn't just skill. It was his ability to understand that his art was his business and his business was his art. And he was going to do this very well. And he was determined to be taken seriously for this and to be paid well for it. And he did both those things. Yeah, he probably had a harder time back then uh, embracing the idea of being a, an artist and not starving, a thriving artist than we probably could today. Because there, yeah. there are a lot of thriving artists that are good role models for that. Yeah, I mean, the the idea of being a commercial artist didn't exist. It certainly exists today, and mm-hmm. that's more of a 20th century phenomenon with you know, the advent of television and popular culture, um, you know, bands like the Beatles and even Bob Dylan, like being a, an artist and having everybody in the world know your name. I mean, that, that was never really true until recently. Uh, and so in the Renaissance, for the most part, artists were blue collar workers. They were, um, you know, like the equivalent of like a, you know, a construction worker. Like they did work that people valued, uh, but it was a commodity. And Michelangelo, speaking of mindset, wrote to one of his relatives. He said, I never, and this was when he was older, you know, 70, 80 years old. He said, I never kept the shop like most artists do. And, and I mean, like he's speaking condescendingly. He's saying, I wasn't this blue collar struggling artist like so many of my peers where I would you know, do produce my work, bring it to the market and try to sell it or do these little meager commissions. He was success bound and, um, and, and made the right decisions to get to that status. And he also was really, really great. He was top of his game. And, and so the book is not necessarily, here's how to be a rich artist or here's how to be Michelangelo, but it is looking at the decisions that he made and how the things that he did, you know, the commonalities amongst all successful artists, creative entrepreneurs over the past 500 years, and also what thriving artists are doing today to succeed in their craft. And it turns out that these aren't just random things. A lot of them are doing uh, many of the same things, which is what makes up kind of the rules in the book, which I call the, the rules of the new renaissance. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Larry, we have a new sponsor for our podcast, and I know you know these guys really well. Yeah, I sure do, Armin. We're so honored to have the National Coalition of Ministries to Men as our sponsor for this episode. Now, I've been a member of that organization for nearly 15 years, and I had the honor to serve as its president for the last six years. It's a coalition of over 200 member organizations, all committed to discipling men. And Armin, as you know, we're all called to make disciples. 
That's right. And the guys I talk to that lead disciple making ministries talk about how important yet difficult of a task it can be because they have to deal with people like me. And me. Yeah, you know, it sure is, Armin. And that's why NCMM was formed by leaders in the men's movement 20 years ago, because they needed to encourage, strengthen, and share ideas between themselves. Now, they have a big event coming up in November, and it's their national gathering in Nashville on November 13th through the 15th. And this really promises to be one of their best. Yeah, it looks amazing. For some of you, your bold idea may be to disciple men. And if it is, then you should definitely check it out. Learn more about the National Coalition of Ministries to Men by going to ncmm.org. Yeah, let's talk about one more of those mindset okay. uh, rules that you had. In your book, you, you simply write these five words, which kind of hit me. It was a nice speed bump. Stop trying to be original. Yeah. And, and I love that because I think, in, in, at least as I examine my own uh, pursuits, there are often, that's, that's kind of the myth in my own head is that, well, it's already out there. Somebody's already done that and it's not really original. And so therefore, what I have to offer has no value. Right. So there's this quote by uh, a historian named Will Durant, and he says, nothing is new except arrangement. And there's this idea that we're all kind of doing our work, building on what has come before, using the same source material, and it's not original. And so many amateurs uh, will, you know, musicians, writers, creatives will say, well, I I just want to do something original. And anytime I hear somebody say that, I'm, I'm thinking, you don't understand how this works. Because all of your heroes, all of the greats that have come before you did not do that. They did the opposite of that. They copied uh, their heroes and eventually built on the work of their influences and, and produced something new as a result of stealing. The, the actor, Michael Caine, says, you have to steal. You have to steal everything that you see. And, um, you know, there's that, that um, quote that's often attributed to Picasso, good artists copy, great artists steal. And so what you see when you look at Picasso or a Michelangelo or a Twyla Tharp, you know, who's a choreographer and, and world-renowned dancer, is they're literally copying the work of their peers. This is how they get good. This is how they find their voices and style. And this is eventually the way that they produce what the world calls original work. And they understand they're just stealing from, from the people that, um, uh, that they admire. And over time, what happens, and Twyla Tharp talk, talks about this uh, in her book, uh, The Creative Habit, she says, skill gets imprinted through action. And what she did when she was a fledgling dancer in New York City is she would go into dance studios and she would stand behind her peers, people that were uh, more accomplished dancers than she was, and she would literally mimic every movement that they were doing. Probably kind of creepy, you know, like, what are you doing? And she would just do it over and over and over again until she got that style, what it felt like to do those movements. Not just reading about it, not just watching it, but actually copying it. She would get it into her bones. And then from there, you do leech, reach a level of proficiency and you start dabbling, right? You're, I'm going to borrow that influence and this thing and that thing. And I'm going to pull all of these different influences together 
and I'm going to create my style. It's not created by going to a mountaintop or a cabin in the woods or you know going alone, being alone somewhere and just getting struck by the muse. That's not how these things work. It's done by studying and stealing and eventually curating all that stuff and <laughs> rearranging it. Right, nothing is new except uh, arrangement and then sharing that work with the world and people go wow isn't he so original and you know the truth uh, but that's okay <laughs> i love that that's so shameless <laughs> that's something somebody can do rather than yeah. sitting here trying to create some miraculous original work that they'll never come up with because everyone's already done some version of what you're trying to do anyway but who do you like to steal from well so just to be clear there's no other way to produce good work so it's not like, oh, this is a pretty good plan for most of us. And if you try to be original, um, what will end up happening is you will subconsciously borrow from somebody else where you're directly doing something that's derivative of their work, and it just falls flat, yeah. right? So it's okay to do an homage. It's it's not okay to subconsciously steal from someone, and and it's obvious to everybody. You know, that's the same melody as Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> or, you know, this is the same opening line to Moby Dick. Like, that's not okay. So you've got to do your work. You've got to know your field. And then from there, um, you know, you can produce something really interesting. So who do I like to steal from? Um, uh, you know, I, I like what Michael Caine says. You've got to steal everything that you see. So, I, like, everything I look at, I'm going, how can I steal that? How can I steal that? How can I steal that? So it depends on the, the thing. But with writing, I love Hemingway. I love Seth Godin. I love... Uh, Anne Lamott. I, um, uh, you know, I love Stephen Pressfield. I mentioned him earlier. I appreciate what Malcolm Gladwell does with storytelling and like personal development, self-help advice, and like deep academic research. James Surowiecki does, you know, some cool stuff too. I like reading The New Yorker. Um, so yeah, you know, and I'm stealing from my friends. I'm seeing what they're doing. I'm going, well, that's interesting. And over time, you know, you, you begin to develop your voice, your style. And and I know, like I can look at it and go, okay, this piece of it, you know, is from so-and-so and this piece of it is from such and such. Uh, but, you know, you eventually own it. And it took, I mean, it took me years to feel comfortable with it. I'm still, you know, exploring and experimenting, but I can resonate with what um, Bono said when somebody asked him about how you two got that special sound that everybody has been copying for the past, you know, 20, 30 years. And, and they said, how did you get that sound, that pure, simple sound of U2? And he says, you know, all we were trying to do was copy these other bands around us, these hair bands and metal bands and, and you know, pop bands. And we weren't good enough to do what they were doing. We couldn't do the, 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 the guitar solos. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. And so we had to simplify it. We had to find shortcuts to try to do what they were doing, and we couldn't do it as well. And this is what came out. I, I, I feel that way, where I'm like mm. observing what all of these writers who are better than me have done, and I'm borrowing this, and I'm borrowing that, and I'm trying to copy them, and, and I'm not as good as them, and so I, I've got to make these shortcuts. And what comes out is something that, that to me feels lesser than what I'm copying, but because I'm rearranging it and, and doing it in my own way, it's it's connecting with people in a way that feels original to them. And I've started to become comfortable with that instead of going, ah, oh, shucks, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not as good as so and so. And I mean, if you two can do that, you know, and they can, we're just copying, you know, people have come before us and we're that good. Then I guess it's okay for all of us to say, yeah, like it's my attempts to be 
the people that I look up to and my remix of their work, you know, feeling uh, like insufficient, but also understanding that it's connecting with people and reaching them in a new way that maybe that predecessor wasn't able to do. That's an honor, and that's a really cool thing to be a part of. Yeah, I remember. In, I remember in school they said if you if you look at one student's work, uh, that's uh, that's that's copying and theft. If you do multiple, it's research. <laughs> that's you, right. You, yeah. did, you, you did yeah. a lot of research for your book. Now let's let's turn back to that because you talked to a lot of people uh, that you put in your latest book. What was um, the the takeaway that most stood out to you that, that really inspired you in your own personal objectives and things that you're trying to accomplish in your own life? Um, yeah, so for me, research is not necessarily a conscious thing. It's just I'm curious about something. I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm having conversations a lot. And it's this thing that um, won't leave me alone. You know, it's like mm-hmm. listening to your life. I'm listening to what people are saying, what I'm reading, and I start to see a theme and with this book, I was reading lots of artist and author biographies. I read that story about Michelangelo, and then I was having conversations with creatives here in Nashville and you know, friends of mine in New York and L.A. and all around the world. And I started to realize, wow, like there's there's something common here. The big thing that um, I uh, realized, uh, Larry, that, that made me want to write this book is successful creatives – are not precious about their work. I mean, I think that's kind of what it boils down to. Say that again? Successful, creative people are not precious about their work. It's not precious to them. It's work. Uh, and it's not It's not a commodity. You know, it's not something that is, is not important or meaningful or interesting to them, but it's not their baby, Right. I, I often hear entrepreneurs say, don't call your business your baby because you might have to kill your business. <laughs> like, you know, you shouldn't kill your baby. Like, that's kind of rule number one of parenting is your job is to keep this thing alive. Um, and like this is your work. This is not you. This is something that you produce. And having uh, like, a, like a, a healthy lack of preciousness about your work allows you to succeed in ways that um, otherwise um, would prohibit you from doing it. There's another rule in the book that sort of exemplifies this called harness your stubbornness. And I argue that there's good, bad, there's good stubbornness and bad stubbornness. Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon said, we are stubborn on vision but flexible on details. So good stubbornness is when you're stubborn on vision. This is what um, thriving artists do but flexible on the details. So I want to be an artist. I don't know how I'm going to get there. So I'm going to try a bunch of different things. I want to write books for a living, but I understand some books may sell better than others, and I may have to speak and do these different things, but I'm going to find a way to make that happen. The starving artist does the opposite. They do the bad kind of stubbornness where they're stubborn about every single detail, and they have no vision, right? And and F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, did this in his life where he started out very stubborn on his vision. He, he, he was engaged to a woman named Zelda. She wasn't going to marry him until, she, until he proved to her that writers can actually make a living. And so he was very tenacious early on in his career. Lots of rejection, lots of rejections. Didn't matter. He kept persevering until eventually he published This Side of Paradise, which was a runaway bestseller. And the day that that book came out, he and Zelda got married. And afterwards, you know, I mean, he was one of the, the best paid writers of his time. He was making the equivalent of about $500,000 a year. And, um, 
a few years later, he starts working on The Great Gatsby, which we all know to be a classic, of course. But he got so consumed with the details, the title. What are women going to like it? Do you, what? What if the critics don't like it? And it was very precious to him. You know, it was his masterpiece. And I know what that feels like, where you're so close to the work that if this, if people don't get this, if this doesn't succeed, I don't know what I'll do. And uh, the lesson of The Great Gatsby is sometimes your greatest fears do come true. Sometimes the worst case scenario does actually happen. So Fitzgerald is worried that the critics won't like it, that, um, that women won't like it, that they won't like the title, et cetera. And all those things happen. Mm. And the book doesn't sell very well. And he is crushed because he has been so consumed with these details. He doesn't have the big picture vision of the next 40 years of my life and writing. He already has kind of a bad drinking habit and becomes much worse. His wife ends up get, getting committed to a sanitarium. Uh, he, he ends up more or less quitting uh, his career as a novelist, and he moves to Hollywood to write screenplays just so he can survive and make a living and support himself, his wife, and his daughter. And he dies at the age of 40, considering himself a failure. And here's the thing. Five years later, The Great Gatsby becomes a bestseller. And they start sending it in paperbacks, uh, you know, out to soldiers, uh, you know, on the war front. And then they come back and they know the story and eventually it, it becomes, uh, you know, standard reading in high schools. And every year since, The Great Gatsby basically sells more copies than the previous year. So that's, I mean, that's like, that's the thing that we have to be aware of. This thing that you're working on, um, I get it. It's your work. It's important to you. Don't let it be precious uh, because if it's precious and people don't see the value of it right now, that, that can crush you and take you out of the game. And you need to be stubborn on your vision, which is I am trying to produce a body of work that allows me to continue producing my work for the rest of my life. And some people may like this piece or that piece, but over time, I believe that people will get it eventually. And so I'm going to be very stubborn on the vision. I'm going to keep writing books. I'm going to keep creating. I'm going to keep moving forward instead of thinking about this thing right here. Oh. This little detail is so important. That is yeah. so good because like, we get so caught up in the immediacy of things that are happening to us. And we don't take that long range view that you're talking about. Jeff, excellent. And we have just covered so much ground and I know we could plow even further, but we're kind of out of time. Jeff, yeah. how can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, you can find me at goinswriter.com. That's just my last name, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. And uh, yeah, lots of free stuff there. You can sign up for my email list. Uh, I've got free eBooks and, and other things there. And if you do pick up a copy of the book, uh, which is available at Amazon, wherever books are sold, uh, be sure to go to don'tstarve.com, don'tstarve.com, and you can get some freebies there, including transcripts of the interviews I've done, access to an exclusive community of thousands of writers and creatives who can help you in your journey, and I'm a part of that as well, and that's at don'tstarve.com. Well, excellent. Love it. Excellent. Jeff, we got to have you on again, man. It's been fun listening to all your crazy stories. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I appreciate you uh, letting me bend your ear. <laughs> it was great. Thanks, Jeff. So appreciate you being part of our podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I mean, that was a good, long, healthy conversation with Jeff. I like Jeff. Yeah, that was great. Uh, he <laughs> covers topics I care about deeply. He, uh, he's he got stories that I love to listen to. I just, I, that, that was great content. I loved it. 
Yeah. And you, um, I know you said your wife read his book and I, I'm telling you, it's, it's worth reading. I want to recommend it to our audience to read this book because part of, you know, Jeff only skimmed a couple of the things that he talks about in his book, two of the 12, (laughs) two of the 12 ideas. And he, uh, has these rules that are broken up in mindset, market and money. And I'll tell you, this book is smartly written. I mean, Jeff has honed his craft and it reads, reads well it reads uh smooth it it's engaging it's inter- interesting it's entertaining yeah and uh and it answers and and deals with i think many of these questions that we ask uh, ourselves and uh, you know just as we dipped into this interview but there's a few things that i think stood out for me and i want to hear f- from you what what hit your uh hot button there Armin, as you were listening to yeah i think uh one of my favorite lines that he said is activity follows identity and that's something that I've seen so many people, including myself, uh, fall apart on, right? We have, we have these things that we want to be, these, this idea of the type of person that we want to be, but we spend so much time researching and thinking about it, praying for it, but not really apply anything towards it, mostly because of fail- fear of failure, mm-hmm. that we can never attain that identity because there's no action to back it. And just hearing something as simple as those three words that action follows identity that it's i don't know it, it's it's just direct to the point and it helps people realize okay if this is whatever this idea of a person is that you want to be there's some one simple thing that you got to do yeah act yeah it was the reason i asked that question about his background here because i didn't know that story about him is when he decided to embrace that term writer yeah. that he actually engaged it and and moved into it and said, started writing. Right, that's what I'm going to do. And well, he was writing before, but not as purposefully, you know, because he didn't see that identity uh, uh, so strongly for him. And once he did, right, uh, that turned it on. And I thought that was really helpful. And I remember reading that about Jeff some time ago, yeah. and I wanted him to tell that story because I think it's really relatable for many of us. We have this fear to embrace this thing that maybe we're really wired to do, right? And I think that's the that's the key message there is to grab a hold of that. And I love that he said, you know, sometimes uh, it takes the people around us to remind us of what's obvious. Clearly <laughs> not his wife, though. <laughs> well, you know, I think if there's kind of one thing, I mean, that we found we among the guys <laughs> that we've talked to is that generally speaking, our wives are way out ahead of us yep. and we need other people. And we can't hear them. We can't, they- <laughs> yeah, so what is that? We got this like wife filter on, you know, it's like, it's like yeah, blah, 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 blah. If somebody else says it. We hear it. Oh, right? I knew it. <laughs> It's funny. I literally had this conversation with my wife last week. She said something about my book I was writing and she said it was good. And I was like, I can't trust you. You love me too much. And I walked away. And then the next person said, it's good. I was like, yes, it's good. She's like, I just said it was good. I'm I like, know. I, I yeah. told you, I can't I, trust you. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had like that with my wife. Right? Well, like, hey, this guy had this idea. You know what? I gave you that idea too. And you didn't like yeah. it when I said it. You know? <laughs> it's just this, there's something about it. It's like, uh, we just filter that out. Ladies, you just going to have to put up with guys that do that sort of thing if you're <laughs> if you're among if you're among them because it's going to happen okay so some other stuff what else did you hear um well I, I guess to keep going with the activity follows identity the thing uh that the thing that prevents people to, from taking that action um is often has to do with the fact that most people most of us can I don't know. Most of us think that we have to take some leap of faith, right? Mm-hmm. And the people that that are out there 
spouting off about what you have to do and what the leap of faith looks like. And it kind of looks like leaving everything behind. It makes it so daunting that most people don't want to take it. And I love the fact that he statistically broke it down and said, actually, the people who take leaps of faith, a.k.a. Armin Asadi, who does this quite (laughs) often, are not as successful as the people who keep what they're doing, but take steps of faith towards what they want to accomplish rather than the leaps of faith. And yeah. I, so I think those things, those two things put together gave really great content and direction on how to pursue whatever it is that you feel called to. Yeah. He called it building a bridge. Right. <laughs> and perhaps as opposed to walking a plank. <laughs> right. Know, just like, or people tell you to burn your canoe. Or burn your canoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and drown. And, and Jeff is right. There are some people that are able to build their parachute as they're jumping out of the airplane, but um, <laughs> they're probably statistically few. Yeah. And there's probably more people littered on the, on the <laughs> Walk, ground walking over the 99 <laughs> dead bodies <laughs> but i did like that idea of just you know this uh, persistent daily habit of of working on your dream and then that way you know whether it's really something that you enjoy enough to really pursue and i think it is a very practical piece of advice to build it you know yeah. we did talk about how to pivot in place back in the reinventure me days uh, yep. the reinventure me the episode yeah that's right <laughs> i think it was episode 28 i mean we talked about pivoting in place and how do you move into a new thing while you're still keeping your old so for uh, listeners who are thinking about that that might be a nice place as well to get some additional resource uh, for you to think about that i, I love uh, the the idea of the mindset in um, basically two things don't overly get attached to your work that idea of preciousness that he right. was talking about right and at the same time uh, you know, have a mindset that says, I don't need to be original. I'm going to borrow, borrow. Did he say borrow? No, he said steal. steal. He straight up said steal. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he said steal. I'm going to take other people's work and, and, and yet not in a way that is, is plagiaristic. In other words, I'm just repeating it, parroting it, but I'm going to use it and allow that to morph and, and, and bring in other pieces of information. And, and then what comes out is, is really unique to me in the sense that it's original and that it's through the lens of who we are as people. But at the same time, you know, all of us to think that we might be able to put something original out there is kind of the height of ego. Yeah. You know, in many ways there's very few original thoughts. Now there's true originality out there that does come. Yeah. But uh, to, to put your dream on hold until you, believe that you have it, or in my case, to sometimes not do it because I don't think that it's entirely that original right. is, um, is doing a disservice. Yeah. It, and in fact, it's, it's keeping, uh, something that you could bring to the world and others could profit from, uh, to yourself. Right. And in some ways it's a form of selfishness because I, you're not willing to put it out there. I agree. And, and I think the other piece that he added about the stealing is he said, a lot of time when you're taking other people's content, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing this in my own way, but it, it, he was talking about how the arrangement can change everything, right? So it, it, even though you're stealing from other people, per se stealing, um, the way that you arrange that same content that you're stealing from others and deliver it in a different arrangement can mm-hmm. make all the change in the world where one person may not have been able to read that same content and embrace it to do something with it now because you took content and arranged it in a way that's applicable to someone else makes the entire difference. Hey, I'm so glad we talked about this because now I have some insight about that whole question about why we're not listening to our wives because we needed to borrow the research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we 
needed more. Otherwise, if, it, if we just did what they asked us to do, it would be stealing. That's but right. since since now we're hearing it from others, it's research. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, we've got justification for our stupid actions. <laughs> well, I, I know there's probably many ideas that have come to you as a consequence of this discussion with Jeff Goins, or at least I hope it has. And I hope it's been inspiring to you. It certainly has been to me. How about you, Armin? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so we want to suggest that you take a moment and process what you've listened to today. Find some way to implement something that you have heard today into your own life, into the pursuit of your own dream, because you know there's so much more left inside of you that God wants to bring out and put your faith to work. And so we would like to, to inspire you to do that. We'd also love to hear from you what your thoughts were about the show, any ideas that you might have had that it triggered, and uh, leave a comment for us at boldideapodcast.com slash Four zero, or call our show line at six one two five six eight idea. That's six one two five six eight four three three two. We do have a podcast blog, so go out and to boldideapodcast.com. If you haven't entered your email address, you will get blog posts that are inspiring from the guests that are on our show, and uh, we hope that you enjoy that as well. So until next week, this is Larry Gates and Armin Asadi saying so long and go get them. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.